And it's a good reminder as we head back to uh, Revelation tonight. And we're learning a lot in this book. Um, but being candid, last week was difficult and, and terrible as we went through these trumpet judgments. And I think we needed a reminder at the end that all of this was under God's sovereign control, but we also needed a break. So I didn't go through all of the trumpet judgments. We'll get back to them tonight. And, and after the sixth trumpet judgment, we'll also have a pause. It's also as if, if God um, knew that it would be too much for us without reflection on other things. And um, so we're going to see what the events are of that pause and what God has for us to learn. But we're going to see as the sixth trumpet is blown by the angel, uh, more terrible um, judgments. That and, and the fifth trumpet, remember this is, uh, we saw in verse 12, turn to Revelation 9, and we ended at verse 12 after those awful locust-slash-scorpions, uh, locust demonic beings that God sends over the earth to torture people. And then we were told that was only the first woe. This is the last three uh, judgments are the three woes, which means they're the most terrible of the trumpet judgments. It says the first woe is past. Two woes are still to come. We're going to see the sixth trumpet, and then eventually the seventh trumpet will be another series, just as with the um, the seals, the seventh seal was the trumpet judgments. We'll see eventually here the seventh trumpet is the bowl judgments, and terrible things indeed. But we're going to um, be amazed, really, at the responses to this judgment, and then the response that John has to these things are going to proclaim to us, help us to know. Because really, as we go through these, it's like, what do you do with this? How do you respond to these things? And that, I think, is what chapter 10 is about. Pause. Okay. John's going to show us how to respond to these terrible things uh, as God shows him. So we're going to see the seventh or the sixth seal that will be open, or the sixth seal has been opened by Christ. And again, the full onslaught of tribulation judgment is released in these trumpet judgments. We've seen awful destruction and torture against creation and mankind, and we still have two more trumpets to go. And mankind will continue to receive further punishment as a result of their sin, and yet their response is going to be surprising. But we're also going to see here what God's people's response should be to all this. And we need to react and submit to God's program. I think one of the weaknesses we have, especially when it comes to this material, is how to tell others about this. It's strange to us. And um, there are certain things in God's word that are really easy for us to proclaim and talk about. The love of Christ and his grace and mercy. And those are wonderful things. But there are other aspects of Scripture that God also intends for us to proclaim that we tend to avoid. Maybe because we don't understand or it's just too disturbing. 
But as we're going to see from John's response, we really must commit ourselves to giving people the whole counsel of God. That's my commitment as a pastor to you and to others. And so our response to terrible judgments must be to be faithful servants in the midst of those things, as we read and comprehend these things. Well, first of all, in the response to terrible judgment is that sinners refuse to repent during judgment, and they will be continued to be devastated by tribulation judgments. Verse 13, this sixth trumpet that is blown. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Again, as terrible as these things are, God has numbered them down to the hour of his, his timing and how long they will take place. Let's skip down to verse 20 before we pray. Here's a response from all of this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Father, it's a sobering reality and as terrible as these judgments are that man will still rebel against you. Lord, for your people that is grievous. And we read these things and, and wonder what are we what do we need to do with them? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to apply these things? Thank you for chapter 10 that gives us that response, that we submit to the word you've given to us, and we proclaim that word, even if it's bitter tasting in our mouths. And help us, Lord, to have the courage to do that at the appropriate times. People have an interest in end-time events. Help us to proclaim the grace and love of Christ, but also that judgment is coming, and for people that they need to be prepared so that they will not face these awful things. Give us courage to be able to do this. And this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the sixth trumpet of judgment is blown, is blown, and a powerful voice again speaks from this golden altar of incense that's in the presence of God. Maybe again, uh, another angel or God's voice himself, but it will call now for the release of four angels that interestingly and rather strangely it says it's held, they're held captive in a specific geographical location on the earth uh, the the ones that were released before from that bottomless pit is a spiritual uh, containment center for demons but this is much more specific we can find the river euphrates today now, we won't be able to find this prison where these things are located, but it is a specific place. Um, and these angels is what we'll talk about next, who they are and what they will do. So look at verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared were released to kill a third of mankind. Who are these four angels that God has locked away in the earth? Well, the, the basic clues here, 
really help us to understand. Uh, I think we would we would all assess and uh, agree that the faithful angels that serve God in heaven, that God would not lock away. That wouldn't make any sense. Locking away in a prison portrays judgment. And so these are not faithful messengers uh, that are praising the Lord and somehow they got locked um, in this dungeon in the river, near the river Euphrates. These are fallen angels. They have to be. God's servants, faithful servants, would not be locked away in the earth. Well, what to make of this? Well, just like those uh, demon hordes that were locked away in the bottomless pit, pit it seems most likely that all the way back in creation, after God created the angels, and we have that, from what we can tell from Scripture, Satan's rebellion and the fallen angels that chose to go with him, um, God actually chose who would be allowed to flee with the adversary and who would be locked up for God's own purposes. So even though Satan and his minions rebelled, it seems as if God said, okay, I will allow you, this group, to follow after Satan because we do know there's demonic influence on the earth. We have descriptions of that in our Bibles and we hear of that today. So they're in the earth, but it seems as also that God said, you, you're locked away. You're not allowed to have any influence until my terrible time of judgment. And so as terrible as these uh, demons are in their description, remember, folks, they are mere pawns in the hands of our all-powerful God. And he will decide, it says here, the very hour, the day, the month, and the year that they will be able to be released, and the time frame that they'll be able to be released. God's enemies, as terrible as these are, still must do his bidding. He is in control of them all, and that gives us hope in the midst of these terrible descriptions. And we need to remember that. But this group of angels is now released and given full freedom to act on their great desire. What is their greatest desire? Not just to torture men, but to kill them to take their anger out on God's creation. And so they will literally supernaturally kill off a third of the human beings left on earth. And it says here they're released to do what God intended for them to do. But I don't really view these demons as saying, okay, Lord, we're ready to do what you've called us to do. I wouldn't look at it that way. I'd look at it as God says, you can be released to do what you naturally will do, and they take opportunity um, to kill men. God says, you have permission from me now to not just torture men, but to kill them. And they are eager to do so. You know, we talked about this last week and how our media and our culture and, and TV and movies make light of demonic activity and of witchcraft and all these kinds of things and you know every so often when we're watching a show together as a family um or, or a movie family movie the topic of ghosts will come up and you know they're sometimes made there there's humorous um, depictions of haunted houses and things and then there's some that are a little more serious and a little more mysterious now of course there there are this whole genre of horror movies 
where ghosts and demons and creatures do terrible things. But there's also another genre with families where ghosts aren't necessarily portrayed as evil, but they're just mysterious and intriguing. And, you know, sometimes um, there was one depiction of a ghost that I remember one time and something we were watching where the ghost was released and singing Amazing Grace of all things. Really strange. So, you know, as these things came up, we don't, we, we're careful with our boys, but I said, boys, really, what are there such things as ghosts? And they had to think about that. Sometimes we do, too. I know um, growing up that there were kids, uh, friends of mine, that gave stories of um, translucent figures that they saw, and I, I hope it was in their dreams, in the room with them, and I was always a little skeptical of that. But is that possible? Is it possible for disembodied spirits disconnected from human bodies to float around? Well, if you know your scripture, you know that's not possible. There's only one of two places that spirits go after their bodies um, die and, and have given up their last breath. And if, for those of us that know Jesus Christ, that's to be with him. We're not floating around um, hoping to get a body in the future down here. We're praising and being in the presence of God. Praise the Lord. But the others, those that have rejected God, are in a temporary containment center, hell, Hades, of punishment, until God deals with them in finality at the lake of fire. So there's no room for that aspect of ghosts. So what are ghosts? Well, if there are ghosts, folks, it's demonic activity. And there's nothing whimsical or friendly, or beautiful about that. And I had to remind my children of that, that we can't get caught up in all this, but remember what the Bible says, and how does the Bible then depict demonic activity always as ugly and terrible? We don't want to mess around with these things, because they truly are awful. Here we have again, let's, let's continue to read because it is strange. As they get ready to do their dirty work, verse 16, the number of the mounted troops. Um, these are troops that go alongside with these four angels that are prepared. And the troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. Anybody good? No, I looked it up. I did my own math, and I think I'm correct on this. But any mathematicians want to figure out how many troops that is? Two. Actually, I, I my uh, calculations were two million. So, if you think ten thousand times ten thousand is one million, and then twice that is two million. So. Well, my calculator. Hmm. Well, my calculator, my commentary said two million. So um, I will, I will check on that again. But I think we can agree. I was, yeah, like Sandy said, I couldn't agree here. We can agree here. It was a whole lot, and it, it will be. Excuse me. This hasn't happened yet. And John knows the correct number because he heard their number. And um, these came forth and. Really, what could these be then but demonic hordes again? Demonic forces 
really is the best interpretation of this. Ready, prepared for battle against men who will appear alongside these four angels, numbering in the millions. And folks, if this troubles us as readers, even as we continue in this description, think really how terrible it will be to actually face this onslaught. This isn't something that we want any part of. And then we continue with the appearance of these demons. There's nothing cute or beautiful about this. They're hideous. Verse 17, this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. They're wearing battle armor of fire. And really that of sapphire, that word has the idea of colored blue smoke. And of uh, also the color of a green sickly sulfur. The heads of these horses are as wild lions ready to devour. And these fire-breathing lions then, complete with smoke and the scent of sulfur, must be truly terrifying. They will cause sickness and death to a third of mankind. And if my estimates are accurate, that is another 2 billion people according to today's estimates. Already lost in the book of Revelation was depicted so far as 2 billion. And now 2 billion more will be lost. Devastating. You imagine the terror in this. But it's not finished yet. After it talks about these three plagues, verse 18, a third of mankind will be killed, sickness, and by these creatures themselves, and this, these things coming out of their mouths, no dragon would be as terrifying as some of these creatures. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. They have the power to attack and wound with their bodies, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them many wound and the picture here is repulsive to us and we're meant to react this way to this this is repulsive this is um terrifying to us we should be disgusted by this there's nothing pretty about this picture at all but here as we go further in verses 20 and 21 a reality that's even more terrible than these creatures are the responses to mankind. They will go through all this terrible suffering, folks. It just it almost um, defies imagination. And those that survive will not turn. Listen And look at this whole list of terrible sins that they're involved in. And with these horrible demonic creatures and all the pain and torture and death and destruction, remarkably, 20... Verse 20, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up. And here's this list. They continued to worship these demons, the very individuals that was tormenting them and killing them. Folks, sin makes us insane. This is the insanity of man that will not give up his sin and continues to worship the very beings that are making him miserable. And they continue to worship idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. 
They make these idols and then they worship them as if they had powers. The same trap that man's been in since almost the beginning of creation, early part of, of, of um, world history. They want their own representation of who God is. They reject the representation of, the two, of, of who God is. They reject God. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, black magic, satanic activity, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I used to think as a child that what this meant was that a man was not able to repent and turn to God. But it's more insidious than that, folks. It's not that they're not able to. I believe that there will be those in the tribulation. We're told, we're told, right? That people that will be martyrs, they'll be faithful people of God that will be um, go through tribulation, that will be killed and will be martyrs in this time. But here's the insidious reality. Mankind doesn't want to turn. He still wants to choose his sin. He says, even with all this terrible judgment, I would still rather have my sin. Insanity. And yet, this is the state that we are in apart from the rescue and salvation of Jesus Christ. In the midst of that sobering reality, we have a pause. We go to chapter 10, and we're glad for that pause, right? We've heard enough of judgments even tonight. Thankful for the pause. You see, sinners refuse to repent during this terrible judgment, but the servants of God recognize the sober reality of judgment and are ready to submit to what God would have them to do. And they submit to the revelation that God has given them of judgment, even though that is limited. So now we're going to see another mighty angel, verse 10, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. The second mighty angel, remember the first one was depicted as a mighty angel with a voice at about the time that John, they were trying to um, decide who was going to open the scroll and that mighty voice from that mighty angel recognized the Lamb of God. Well, here's a second mighty angel. And he resembles the description that we had earlier of Jesus Christ. But in context, really, this, that doesn't fit. This really cannot be Christ because of how he reacts. And at this point where Christ is, this is, though, even though this is not Jesus himself, this is a powerful representative of Christ Truly a heavenly, majestic, and pure figure that has been sent by Christ for this moment. And this angel is bigger than a giant because he's able to put one foot on land and one foot in the water, and he towers perhaps over the earth itself. And by the way, as a side note, it seems at this point John has been momentarily transferred back to the earth to see this mighty earthly perspective of one and this with this angel and how he's standing. Verse 2, it talks about a little scroll open in his hand. We'll get back to that. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And this gives us the impression that he is in control, that he has been given authority over the whole earth. 
as this magnificent angel stands there and readies and then with a loud voice like a lion roaring calls out and we'll get back to that very soon. But what about this little scroll open in his hand? We're not told a lot about this. And as my friend Dr. Gary Reamers pointed out when I heard him teach this, it seems as if um, scripture that God expects us to understand what this is without giving us uh, many details. And so let's look at this a little bit more. It's open. It's not sealed. So it is accessible, right? It's, it reveals that it's accessible. And what of God's word would be accessible to us today? And I would agree with the interpretation of some that what fits best here is this represents God's word revealed to us. It's accessible. And yet, well, it says it's little, though. Doesn't that limit the power and majesty of God's word? No, I think it's the reason it's described that is because God has given us what he wants us to have in his revelation, of his revelation, for us to understand. But he hasn't given us all revelation, folks. He's given us what he wants us to know. And in that little book that's manageable, that you can literally take God's word, and if you're careful, you can follow a plan and read it in a year. It's manageable, it's understandable, but it doesn't represent all of God's revelation. But it's all we need. And so it's a reminder to us, we don't have all of God's plan for the ages, but in his word, that little scroll, we have all we need to um, submit and follow after him and trust Christ and all of these things. And that seems to be the best explanation of what that is. Well, this continues. John next hears an amazing, awesome exchange between this mighty angel and actual thunder. This is interesting. And when he called out, verse 3, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Can you imagine this huge, magnificent figure? And as he speaks, this lion's roar that had to be magnified beyond any nature show you've ever seen. And as he continues, he calls out, he has these seven thunders that sound and answer him, and they have a conversation. They have a chat. And when the seven thunders had sounded, John gets ready to write, because that's what Jesus told him to do. That's his job. He was ready to write whatever God asked him to write, whatever God would ask him to do. And servants, as opposed, folks, to sinners, are ready to submit to whatever God asks them to do, just like John is here. So John dutifully begins to write the exchange, and all of a sudden he's told something kind of that, that was unexpected to him. I says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven. And most likely this is God himself, saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. God himself tells John not to reveal this part of the revelation, not to reveal that conversation. Well, why would he do that? I mean, have you, we all know the experience of seeing somebody or, or knowing that somebody is talking about something, whether it's us or maybe somebody tell, gives us a little bit of information about something and then they stop and they won't give us any more information and it's like just drives us crazy. Well, what? No, I got to know. 
I've done that before with people. I've been accused of doing that uh, even in, in preaching and giving a little bit of the events but not the full story and they come back afterwards well what was the rest of the story because it just kind of drives us almost crazy well is that what god's trying trying to do here just kind of trying to tempt us and say ah I'm, you here's this amazing conversation but you can't know any of it no i think he's pointing out here that he has given us in that little scroll all the revelation we need but we don't always get all the revelation that we want and we have to humble ourselves before that, folks. There are things in God's Word, as we've continued to study God's Word as I've been here, and we wonder, I'd like to know more about that. I'd like to have more understanding about that. And people take uh, major issues, too. Uh, by the way, um, things like the sovereignty of God and man's uh, choosing of Jesus Christ. That issue we talked about last week, about God's sovereign control over all things, and yet the fact that prayer changes things. The Trinity, these truths where we hear enough to, to somehow understand, and yet we want to know more. Lord, how does this all fit together? And God says, I'm not going to give you everything that you demand that I give you. And the, the, the problem is, in those situations that people then... Um, logically take it further than God's revelation has given us and in their systems. Even that thing with God's sovereignty, salvation itself, and God's choosing of his elect and man's responsibility. Some people take then the logical step, well, if God has chosen people for salvation, then he also must have chosen people to condemn to hell. And yet, as I mentioned before, there's no verse or indication that God does that and condemns people to hell. It's all their own responsibility. Well, I don't understand how those work together. God, help me understand. And God says, you just believe. And don't go logically further than what I have given you, but humble yourselves before the fact that I'm not going to tell you everything. And that's hard. It's frustrating to have our curiosity aroused and not supplied further information. I mean, seriously, wouldn't we, don't we desire to know what, what this huge angel, having a conversation with thunder, what would that be like? What does thunder say back to you? You know, what does thunder say? But God decided for our benefit that we could not comprehend or handle a complete account of his plan. And we have to satisfy ourselves that we have all that we need in his word even if we never find out what that conversation was it's not necessary these are the the important emphasis that we need to have god is portraying his servants to be submissive to him whether they understand everything that he's doing or whether they don't and we must be submissive to that to his revelation that he has given to us we also must be, as we finish up here, submissive to our role in proclaiming God's word, prophecy, and judgment. And now this great angel will lift his right hand and swear a great solemn oath. See, even back then they had to raise their right hand when uh, swearing an oath. Uh, but this certainly was an important special oath indeed. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, the eternal God, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth 
and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And so he has taken this oath by the name of the eternal God, by the Creator. That being who determined the beginning of creation. What we're going to see here, as God was the creator and the owner of creation, he also has the authority then and the freedom to do with it what he wants and to put an end to it when he decides to put an end to it as well. And that is what is going to happen very soon because the angel says that there will be no more delay. Now in the King James Version it says time shall be no more. And that's a, a wonderful translation that is meaningful to all of us and has even uh, made its way into some of our favorite hymns. But there is a little bit of difference here in that translation that I just want us to be aware of. Because what does this mean in the end? Does it mean at this point that there's no more delay, that time will stop, will be no more? Or does it mean, as some of the other translations tell us, that there will be no more delay in the end of God's plan? Well, as nostalgic as we may be for that phrase, time shall be no more. Folks, we still have over, we have half of the book of Revelation to go through. Time can't stop at this point because we still have judgments and then we still have the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. And if time has stopped, how are you going to count the thousand years? How are you going to know? So it's not really the best translation is not time shall be no more, but that there will be no more delay. That God's plan is coming to fulfillment and completion just as it was prophesied in his word, in the little scroll. Verse 7, But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. A lot of this was a great mystery to the people of the Old Testament, even who their Messiah would be. You think of the gap between the knowledge of the people, and even of John, and how much that he knew from the Old Testament prophets and the saints of the Old Testament. It truly was a mystery to them. There was many things that they couldn't comprehend. That as we get to the end, the last book of the Bible are made clear to us. And many of the mysteries, and certainly the mystery of salvation for Jew and Gentile, and all that Christ accomplished for us in his death on the cross, the suffering Messiah. All of these things, and, and the most the most highlighted thing in many Jewish minds were was when is the kingdom coming and what would it look like? And this angel is now saying, get ready. The end of the judgments is at hand. The kingdom is coming. The mystery is over. And you're about to experience it. And the... Of course, those of us with the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, the church that are in heaven with the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know if that point we can see down and see this and kind of give a shout and a hurrah. It's about ready to happen. But it is a blessed thing. And so really what he's saying here is that God is bringing to completion 
in finality his plan. And the seventh trumpet will then re represent, as we will see, the final bull judgments. And that will complete the great tribulation judgment period altogether. And Jesus will usher in the kingdom. And then Satan will be thrown in chains and bound. That's something to rejoice in as well. Well, as this recognition continues, John has much to rejoice in, but there's some great bitterness as, as well as he continues to reflect on his role. And so let's look at verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And a unique aspect of this entire revelation now takes place. John becomes a participant rather than an observer. He becomes a player in this. And it's probably a good thing that God himself told John to go and ask, um, not just request, but ask this angel for this little scroll. Because you imagine the greatness and you know this huge giant of an angel. And here's little John, and he's like, I got to go talk to him. And God says, go take the scroll from him. So can you imagine John? Um, hey, I need that scroll. He told me to. <laughs> and somehow, you know, in this, the, the huge angel, this giant, gives him this scroll, which obviously has probably become even smaller so that John can even hold it. And John's first responsibility then is to take the scroll, which as again, the interpretation I believe is God's word and a desire to do so. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch, folks, to say with John, do we obey the command of God to take his word and have an energy to do so? A desire to take his word and look into it is a natural desire for every true child of God. And we don't have to ask from it from a huge, intimidating, um, however tall angel. We have it with us. We have God's word here tonight. And God has commanded us that we take it and that we read it. And then the second part here, that we absorb it and understand it. And so now the angel will reveal the results of taking God's truth within and not just taking it, but consuming, listening, meditating, and applying it to our lives. And so verse 9, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. Strange, right? It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And however this took place, I know we tend to imagine John trying to eat a scroll I'm sure whether this was visually or whether it was representatively, we don't know for sure. But somehow this took place. And he took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and somehow ate it. And maybe this is representative of him reading it, whatever. A strange effect. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, which is a wonderful thing. But then as it hit the belly, it got a little bitter. You ever had food or a, a dinner or a um, portion of food that you were really enjoying from a restaurant or whatever, or even, even something made at home, and it tasted great going down, but by the time it got to your belly, you realize this isn't quite as exciting as what I thought. <laughs> I'm having repercussions from this. I don't know what was in this. 
but um, it's not as enjoyable as what it was while it's in my mouth. Well, certainly we can relate to John in that sense. But what, what really is going on here? And then he's told, verse 11, I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, as I've said, I believe this is God's word. So what is it about God's word that would taste sweet but would be bitter when he took it in? Well, I have three um, aspects. I'll give you one and I'll throw that out. We have a few minutes left for you to think through before I give my last two. I think the first aspect of this is, is something that we all understand is that when we read God's word and we're studying it, there are. All right, very good. I think there's three aspects to this picture. And again, uh, the, those Psalms and Psalm 23 and the Psalms and the passages of Scripture that we love and that we've grown up on that are encouraging and comforting to us. But folks, there's other passages that aren't that way. How about these passages on judgment? They're not our favorite passages, if we can be quite honest. There are parts of God's word that are bitter to us, and yet we must know it all. I think that's the first aspect. I have two more, but you think about this. What do you think is going on? You can't use mine. <laughs> Anybody else have any ideas? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it, it is true. God and his sovereign plan allows us to go through good times and bad times. In relation to, to God's word, especially though, how can it be sweet and also bitter at the same time? I took the easy one. I should have let you think about it. Yeah, before I did mine. Pam? The realization of all that people have to endure is awful to us. Yeah, yeah. It, it it it's not encouraging to hear man's response, right? That he would continue to rebel and would revel in doing so. Just ramp up his sin even more. Just boggles our minds. That's not enjoyable to read, but it's important. Yeah, Rick. David uses the same imagery in Psalm 19, right, about the, the word of God being sweet as honey mm. out of the honeycomb, right out of the honeycomb. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, God's words need to be our passion that we would proclaim it. But yeah, in proclaiming it, sometimes it also brings judgment on those to whom we're proclaiming it, too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's good. That's, that's actually my third observation on what this is referring to. And that applies, has great specific application to the passage. But here's one aspect that I, I will give credit to, again, uh, my friend, Pastor Reimers. Now, I heard him preach this series, and, and he was also my eschatology teacher. 
So forgive me if I bring him up from time to time, but um, he helped me through a lot of these things. And his take on this, and I see where he's coming from, I think there's some um, legitimacy to this, is that is we love as God's people to hear God's word proclaimed, to read it, to hear it preached. You know the sweetness of going away and hearing God's word and understanding it better and knowing it better. And there's an excitement and a thankfulness for that. But the other side of that is when the Holy Spirit's working, then he's also, what does he do with that understanding? He shows us things we need to change. <laughs> now, what are you going to do with that that you just heard? Just as we sang today, but continue that. What are you going to do with what you heard? And that can be bitter because we realize how sinful we still are. We, all, we tend to be people that think we're better and uh, better people, more righteous people than we really are. And when God's word, as sweet as it is, comes and says, oh, you need to work on this. Thankfully, he doesn't show us all at once all the modifications we need to make because that would be overwhelming. But it can be bitter. And we have to rely on God's power and say, Lord, only through you. Thank you for showing that to me. Help me to change. But I think also along the lines of what Rick just said, I think this directly applies to John as well. It was sweet as he ingested it and read it and contemplated and meditated on it. But then he realized his obligation was to proclaim it. And let's, again, be candid. It's easy to take it in, right? It's easy to study it. It's wonderful. God's people should love his word. If you don't love God's word, if you don't love to hear the teaching and the preaching of God's word, there's something broken there, folks. But the hard part many times is realizing now I need to go out and tell others about that. That is part of the bitterness, too. How am I going to tell them about the judgment of the revelation? Well, ease into it. <laughs> Tell them about Christ first and, and their own sinful condition and their need for Christ. But at some point, there's some of these things where you just have to say, Lord, give me strength because this is a bitter challenge that I have. And yet I must do it because it's a great commission. It's not easy to tell people that if they don't um, trust Christ for their sin, that they're going to eternal punishment in hell. That's a bitter thing to talk about. And yet we have to do that. We're called by God, just as John, again, as we read at the end, he says, I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So he was supposed to eat it and then proclaim it. And that can be hard. Well, as we finish up here, again, that contrast between God's people and sinners. When God acts and moves in judgment, sinners still reject but there are those at this time that still see that judgment. There still are those who turn to Christ. And so God's people, through the revelation that he has given them, our response then is to proclaim this so that people will turn to Jesus before it's too late. And let's not get so cynical and just say, well, you know, there, there it is. They're not going to turn to Christ. No, they're still... A lot of people in this time, in this world, before all this judgment, that will turn to Christ. And God may use us to do that when we're faithful and proclaim him, even if it's hard and bitter sometimes, myself included. I need that reminder, as maybe I talk to folks this week. Our response should be submission, 
even as sinners' responses many times is rebellion. Our response should be, Lord, whatever you would have me to do, I will do. Lord, thank you for this reminder. As terrible as these judgments are, thank you even for the pause where we're reminded that you are in full control and that you have a responsibility for your people. Lord, the answer then to what should we do with all this is to read, to study, to understand, and then to tell others. Help us, give us the grace to be able to do that. Give us the wisdom in how to do that, Lord. And maybe just uh, give us the boldness to get to know other people so that we can tell them about Jesus and warn them as well. We need your strength and power for that. And so we ask for it. Help us this week to do what you've called us to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go back.